Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by the generosity of our Patreon supporters. To help the show continue and get the chance to ask questions for a custom Q&A episode monthly, you can check out patreon.com slash secret library. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 3, The Nourished Writer. My guest today is Emily Nagoski, the award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are, and co-author with her sister Amelia of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. She began her work as a sex educator at the University of Delaware, where she volunteered as a peer sex educator while studying psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. She went on to earn an MS in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University, with clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute. Now she combines sex education and stress education to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. It is entirely safe to say that I have recommended the book Burnout to pretty much every student I've had and every client I've had over the past 18 months. This started long before the year that we've had, but it has certainly continued into the experiences of the last six months. Emily's insight and awareness is unparalleled in this area, and I am so grateful, and we are so fortunate that she was willing to speak to us, because this conversation really has the potential to change your life. We get beyond the writing process into the context in which we're all writing, and beyond the concept of simply nourishing into the system and how we can create and engage with a context which is supportive to the creative. It's, it's, a, it's a mind bender, this one, but I couldn't be more proud of this episode. And I hope you get as much out of hearing it as I did out of having this conversation. I'm delighted to introduce Emily Nagoski. Hey, Emily, thank you so much for coming on. It is my pleasure. I I had a little bit of like a fangirl thing before we were coming on because I have, as I mentioned to you, told every single student I have about your book because we need it as writers. And this was before all of this stuff kicked off. Yeah. And now we really need it. So how are you how are you feeling like things have shifted under the the last period and has it changed any of your thoughts about burnout or just intensified them? It has super intensified them. So when I think about the dynamics we talk about in the book, all of them have amplified since 
February, March, right? Yep. We talk about um, the second shift and the third shift. So women who have jobs that they go to, to pay the bills also do a disproportionate amount of the, like keeping the family and household together stuff. And then um, in, when we were reading the research on sleep, we found this term, the third shift, which refers to that Brutal. time at night when, uh, you know, we're all supposed to be sleeping, but some of us are sleeping more than others. And some people are just naturally expected to sacrifice their own biologically necessary sleep in order to support other people's needs. And in a heterosexual family, it's going to be the woman whose job it is to sacrifice her sleep. So the entire 24 hour, all three shifts, uh, the burden on women has been disproportionate in all three and it increases as kids are staying home. Um, and I have writer friends who are women, some of whom have jobs, uh, some of whom have kids, and it just crushes out any space or emotional capacity for creativity. And they feel drained dry. I mean, they were already struggling, like trying to create both physical and emotional and mental space for writing. And now it, this, like, it's all like their kids who had moved away have come back home and are filling up the space in their minds and in their houses. It's so intense. And the homeschooling and all of the things that have been added onto parents at home. And so one of the big ideas in the book uh, is this thing we call human giver syndrome. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a term we take from Kate Mann's wonderful book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. It's a book of moral philosophy. It's pretty dark, but not very long. So if you have this sort of mental wherewithal, <laughs> if you have the spoons for it, I really do recommend it. Um, but she posits a world where there's two types of humans. There are the human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity, which may require being entitled, competitive, and acquisitive. Um, and then there are the human givers who are in, required to, they have a moral obligation to give their full humanity, their time, attention, feelings, uh, smiles, bodies, hopes and dreams, sometimes their lives sacrificed on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. Guess which one women are? <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, not as simple in black and white as like women are the givers and men are not. Um, I'm married to a dude who is a giver for sure. And it's a very different dynamic in our relationship. The fact that we will both mutually continue giving and giving and we have to help each other monitor the other person's boundaries. Like, do you, like you need to go to your office and go work on your own shit and not just be here for me all the time. It's a really different dynamic. So know that it is not just women who experience this, but disproportionately women just, it's just expected that we're going to, whatever we have, we're going to give it and how selfish and um, how dare we take any time for ourselves to work on our own projects or to live in our own intellectual space. Uh, and it's selfish, you selfish bitch, if you dare to take that time and attention away from others. Yep. And what do you have to do in order to write? <laughs> right, exactly. You must. So um, one of the morals of the story that Amelia and I, I co-wrote the book with my sister Amelia, um, the moral of the story ultimately was that the cure for burnout is not and cannot be self-care. Self-care is just the fallout shelter you build in your basement because apparently it's your job to protect yourself from nuclear war. 
Right. Or wait, should we maybe do the nuclear disarmament? Hmm, maybe that's a better solution. Absolutely. It can't be self-care. It's not just up to you. The point of burnout is when you get burned out, you don't have the emotional wherewithal to care for anybody, including yourself. So the cure for burnout must be all of us caring for each other. The cure for burnout is to surround yourself with people who value your well-being probably more highly than you do, who value your well-being as highly as you value theirs. Yeah, because that's so sad, but often we have to think things like, would you allow someone to speak to a friend the way you're speaking to yourself right now? Exactly. Because we're not would capable. Would you speak to a stranger on the bus right. the way you're currently speaking to yourself? Exactly. Because we can't just set a boundary on behalf of ourselves. Yeah. Self-criticism is, I mean, all of chapter eight basically is about self-criticism and how yep. dangerous it is and how do we find a way to counter it? Because for some people, so the opposite of self-criticism is self-compassion. Many of us by now have probably heard about the research or read about self-compassion. We've seen Kristen Neff's brilliant TEDx talk. We've read Chris Germer's book. Like, And for some people, receiving the information of self-compassion that you can be kind to yourself and gentle with yourself the way you would be with a tantruming child, no matter what, even, even when you make mistakes, even when things aren't going your way, you can be kind and it's unconditional gentleness with yourself, recognizing that we are not separated by the ways we struggle. We are brought together by the common human experience of struggle. When people uh, have uh, an intense exp past experience of trauma, neglect, or abuse, when they try to practice self-compassion, it will actually activate a stress response their brain responds to self-compassion as like a lion chasing them across the savanna of Africa. So they need a different kind of intervention than just turning toward their own difficult feelings with kindness and compassion. Uh, and we can get into that as deep as you want to go. <laughs> it's a really big deal. It is a big deal. And I think particularly anyone who has a traumatic history being in current circumstances has not helped anyone to feel less stressed out. There are strange dynamics happening in the pandemic situation because for people who are survivors of long-term neglect, abuse, trauma, um, what's happening is our outsides now match our insides. And mm. there is a kind of peace that comes with that. Right. That the world actually is as dangerous as we always felt it was. <laughs> It's so validating. You're just like, oh, right. Like I've been preparing for the real, something real, not just an imaginary disaster. Yeah, which is, that's not a great environment for healing. No, definitely uh, but not. There is a complicated experience that survivors have in the midst of a horror show. And I, even though it's helpful on one level, it delays healing on another level, we need a place of peace and safety around us in order to be able to create a place of peace and safety within ourselves. When the wounds are deep enough, a lot of us can uh, build a place of peace and safety within ourselves and allow that to create peace and safety in the world around us. But when the wounds are deep, when the wounds are old, when the wounds uh, were not well tended 10 years ago, that makes it really difficult to feel safe within yourself. 
And so it's only possible to begin healing those wounds when you are safe on the outside. It's like putting a cast around a broken bone. Um, it holds it. It creates a space of holding so that healing can happen. I think that's really important because a lot of times when we're writing a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, in order for it to be a rewarding experience to write and to read, we have to get into deep stuff that is sometimes dark and difficult. And one of the most common questions I get is, how do I deal with it when I'm writing something really dark and then it's really hard for me to shake it off when I finish writing? And then I feel I'm just in an ucky place and I don't know what to do about it. And I know you have a solution because it's been super helpful. (laughs) And so this is the completing the cycle thing. Let me add. So in addition to writing the nonfiction, I also have uh, written and published fiction. I write fiction for my sanity. Amazing. Um, One of the main things that it does for me is it gives me a way to like go deep into a story full of all the dark stuff that I have absorbed in the world and purge it onto a page so that like it doesn't have to live in my body anymore. What that looks like is me like sobbing on my keyboard, like hyperventilating snot coming out of my face while I type. Um, And then I'm done. My body gets to the end of whatever got activated emotionally inside me. Um, And this is the key point is that our emotions are cycles with a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like all of our biological cycles. Sleep is a cycle. You go through a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then you wake up. Digestion, beginning, a middle, and an end. And if we don't get all the way to the end, that's not great. No. not so good things will happen, right? Um, The same thing with all of our emotional cycles. Another metaphor is that feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. So when people can't let go, it's that they're getting stuck in the middle of the emotional cycle and they need to allow their bodies to go the rest of the way through it so that they can come to the light at the end. And when you're writing something that is that lives in that place, it means every time you go to write, you go into the tunnel and... uh, when you come back into the world, you have to let yourself go all the way through. You can't just flip a light switch and like no longer be in that space. Our bodies are organic and they require time and space to move through the chemistry of an emotional experience. I love it. I, I had heard, because you talked about the cycle and the cycle was so validating, but I always had this image when I was working on really dark stuff and doing it through a lens of studying psychology, but also through writing fiction, is it felt like Alice in Wonderland. And it felt like I was falling down the well and I would, you know, frequently have people deal with me, you know, in my 20s when I wasn't so good at managing it. And it was like, people who like (laughs) throw a rope down and want to pull you back up. And I'm like, no, I don't want to come back up. I need to get to the bottom and get out the little door into the rose garden. Just let me go down there. I got to go all the way down and then I'm going to come out. And I had never understood why that was until you said tunnels just now. Yeah. And as a survival strategy, like if it's a really big thing you're mining, sometimes you do need to like take the rope and climb back up and live your life for a while before you go back down like a miner. Mm. to go like digging at that hole. Like for sheer survival, you can't just live down there. You are a person with a life, not just a writer <laughs> producing work. Yeah. Um, so when you have other things you need to be doing in your life, um, you 
may not fully process it, especially if like the dark thing you're writing about isn't just entirely hypothetical and imaginary, but coming from something real inside you. If it's big and old, there's this like big old pit of stuff that you've been hiding away in some organ of your body. I don't know which organ your body chose. Um, For me, it's my digestive system. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, for a lot of people, digestive system is the, what your body picks. Um, and uh, but I say that both literally and metaphorically that I experience stress as digestive systems symptoms, but also metaphorically as like when I think about where my stress lives, it's uh, in my belly. Yeah, like I can visualize it, and not everybody. So Amelia is a professional musician, right? And you'd think that she, as the artist of the two of us, my PhD is in public health, my undergrad degree is in cognitive science. Like I am the nerd of the two of us. I am the sciencey one and Amelia is the artsy one. And yet I'm the one who's like, you just listen to your body. You just sink down and get really quiet and attend to what your body needs from you. And my sister hears that and is like, are you kidding me? What is, what? Yeah. What does listen to your body mean? What sounds is it making exactly? Um, and she has always been not great at attending to the needs of her body. And so she has had to work really hard on becoming more sensitive and stopping what she's doing and tuning into what's going on with her body uh, and recognizing that her body has something important to say to her yep. about what she needs. Oh, that's so interesting. It's, I think it's just, it's difficult for most people because we're not taught how to do this. And in fact, no. we're taught pretty systemically to not do it from an early Especially age. Especially women. If, you, if yeah. you, you're, the day you're born, they go, it's a girl. They immediately begin to raise you to believe other people's opinions about your body and your internal experience more than you believe your own body and your own internal experience. 100%. Definitely. And so then when you're in a situation where you want to actually benefit from that knowledge, it's just not there. The walls have, it is there, but it is under layers of uh, stop signs and flashing red lights and uh, bars and walls. And you've got to work your way through all that stuff and be like, no, it's not dangerous. I am allowed. This is my body. I want to connect with it. All that other stuff is bullshit. Um, and that all by itself is a revolution. Yeah, it absolutely is. But it's there. It is never true that it's gone. Yeah, you've got to yeah, you follow it as if, okay, I'm just going to find it. It's here somewhere. Yeah. It's not. Amelia had the experience when she would go looking for it, it wouldn't necessarily show up. But when she just sat really still, it would boom, show up right in front of her. Oh, cool. Yeah, Once, give it, some it was space. like, I'm willing to sit here quietly and allow you to come to me. It was like, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It had been waiting a long time. I imagine so. <laughs> like we didn't write a book about burnout because uh, we knew all the answers. We were really good at it and had always been in great shape. We wrote it because Amelia was hospitalized twice. With stress-induced inflammation that no one ever diagnosed until they finally removed her appendix. Wow. That's no joke. Yeah, she was in grad school. Um, Her uh, doctorate is in choral conducting. And most people don't know that classical music is as patriarchal as any STEM field. 
She mm. remains the only woman ever to have completed that doctoral program. Wow. And it hospitalized her twice of that's how toxic an environment it was that her emotions were not welcome. She was constantly gaslit and undermined. She had to fight really hard. Um, and the reason burnout is the book it is, is be, like I alone would have just written a book about here are the evidence-based strategies for uh, processing the stress in your body with the key idea being that the process of dealing with your stress is separate from the process of dealing with your stressors. Because Amelia was writing it with me, she was like, we need to talk explicitly about the nature of the stressors and those stressors are white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative late capitalism. Yeah, exactly. And as we name it, people are still going to feel like it's their personal responsibility to feel fantastic and be healthy in an environment that is poisoning them every day, which is the problem with self-help books, is that they make it seem like you can just help yourself and be fine. And the fact is nobody's going to be fine uh, until the world is better. But also, this is the magical part about it. Because the process of dealing with your stressors is separate from the process of dealing with your stress, we don't have to wait for our stressors to be fixed before we begin to deal with the stress and feel better. And in fact, we have to deal with our stress itself so that we can be well enough to show up each and every day to confront all of those stressors. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's so validating to read the book because there are all of these descriptions of things where you think, yes, that is how it is. And I never really thought about how bad that is. And it's it's really validating to feel like, no, I'm actually not crazy. This is a real problem. And we don't just describe the social dynamics. We then go into like, let's talk about like the rat research, which shows our chemistry at a mammalian level, how our bodies respond in a way that shows up in our behavior and our choices when we are faced with chronic, in the research, they call it chronic low-level stressors. Nothing life-threatening. It's just like when you get home as a rat research experiment thing, um, they have poured water on your nest. And now you can't just relax in your nest. You have to like clean and dry out your nest. It's a chronic low-level stressor where they flash lights into your cage. It's not life-threatening. It's just a constant irritant that interrupts your sleep and makes you feel stressed out and worried all the time. And it changes how rats behave when they're put in a life-threatening situation. Yeah, because you expect it to be, you don't expect to have an experience where you're not stressed out. You give up sooner. Yep. Exactly. So one of my, this is, we cannot extrapolate directly from rat research to human research, but I do find it interesting that in the research where they expose rats to these chronic low-level stressors, when they put those rats into, it's called the forced swim test. So they drop a rat into a little tank of water and um, the rat will just swim and swim and swim. Uh, and the question is, how soon does the rat give up swimming and just float waiting until a time when it might be possible for their swimming actually to get them out. Right. And uh, in this chronic stress state, the male rats drop their swim time in half almost immediately. It takes weeks for the female rats to drop their swim time in half. And oh, it wow. never drops as low as the male rat swim time. Even female rats, hashtag persist. Yeah. Like, 
trying hard enough is never the problem. No, it is never that people need to work harder. It is never that people need more grit. What they need is more kindness and patience and help. Yes. That's so, I think that's so important. I want to, I want to circle to something you said earlier, which speaking of persisting is that when you're writing something that's difficult, that sometimes you need to kind of airlift yourself out in the middle of it. So if you, we may feel like we have to keep swimming and we have to keep swimming as these, like, I got to finish this scene or I got to finish this section or I got to finish this chapter. How do you like put a pin in it and step away from it in such a way that you can then have downtime in a dry nest, so to speak, and then be able to, you know, keep going to fight another day? Yeah. Again, I'm gifted with an ability to feel my body's feelings. Like when it is empty and done, I walk away. I also don't have any kids. Right. Which means I don't have to like stop at a certain time because my kids need to be picked up from softball practice. Like I can keep going until my body is done. Right. Or when I feel that, um, because I mean, some emotions are too big to just like feel all the way through. Like some mountains are too big to climb in one day. You need to stop for a while, walk away from it um, and come back to it. Uh, and my body is like, yeah, you're tired. You just need to rest now. And this is another one of the cycles, the natural oscillations built into a human being is uh, from effort to rest, back to effort to rest. So your brain will reach a point where like it just won't anymore. And, uh, and don't, when your brain just won't, don't. Like it can't, it can't anymore. Our brains, so... The neuroscience way to talk about it is the default mode network. We are designed to oscillate from this like attention focused state of mind into a default mode network, daydreaming, fantasizing, folding the laundry, just like thinking about the future, planning your vacation, whatever in your mind, um, and then back to focus. And the capacity to, to allow your brain to toggle from attention to default mode network, to mind wandering, daydreaming, back to attention is uh, associated with better mental health and better cognitive performance. So it is not about being able to like focus and just stay and do the thing. It's about being able to stay and do the thing for as long as your brain is, um, good at it, but your performance is going to diminish the harder you push against the edge of your default mode network. If your brain needs to take a break, like you can keep sitting there and working and typing words, but you're, it's just going to be worse and worse. And yeah, you'll hit your word count, but a lot of those words will be words you end up deleting. Yeah. And it's not Far worth better it. to stop, pause and come back to it. You really, the thing about like sleeping on it, that is neurologically for real Z real. That's really good to know because I think that often, yeah, you'll be something, there'll be a question you don't know how to answer. And it's like, if it feels like grinding, it's, it's not going to get you there. It's just going to yeah, if your brain keeps trying not to solve the problem, what it needs is for you to step aside, put it in the back burner so that it continues simmering and when you're taking a shower or when you're cooking dinner or when you're folding laundry or when you wake up from in some from a nap it'll be there 
your brain needs you to stop trying so that it can do the work it needs to do. I think there needs to be a certain amount of trust that we have in ourselves. I think we've been also trained out of trusting ourselves. Like if I'm not actively fighting for this, then it's not going to happen. Right. We need more persistence and determination. And I have, have I ever met anyone in whom lack of persistence or determination was what was getting in their way of achieving their goals? Never, not once. Oh no. People having lack of access to the resources they need is the thing that got in the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or this space or time or yeah, some resource or, or situation. It's like, yeah, I can kind of constantly worry about paying the rent, yep. feeding their kids. That's a really good way to kill creativity. Yeah. Yeah. You go right down into the base level needs and it's like, oh, yeah. if I can't reach this, then of course you can't think about anything else. It's, it's astonishing to me how often people will say something like they feel like they're not necessarily saying it consciously, but it feels like this is what's underneath is this fear that left to our own devices, we will just be lazy and do nothing. And we have to constantly fight against this. And I'm like, well, if that was the case, then why would you be asking about creativity and writing a book? You would be too busy lying on the floor watching Netflix and you wouldn't even ask the question in the first place. And yet we believe- Because unless you have a contract, you don't actually have to write the book. No, no, it's all up to you. You totally could just watch Netflix. Like you, you could, you could just, you could just do that. Um, but we don't let thing, ourselves like, do with, that. If with self-criticism, the same, I hear this story over and over. Like if I stop beating myself up, I will uh, stop trying to be better. Like it is how I motivate myself to keep trying. Like if I don't stop swatting myself with this cat of nine tails whip, my father was raised Catholic, cat of nine tails mm. whipping and hair shirts is what I grew up oh, hearing yeah. about. So that's my metaphor. Um, if, I, if I don't keep whipping myself, I'm not going to keep marching toward the person I should be. And if you stop to think about that for just a second, you'll realize, because if you put down the whip, what happens? You stop beating the shit out of yourself. What happens? you start to heal all the wounds you have been inflicting on yourself all this time. And as you heal, you get stronger. And I think that's actually, there are several barriers that pop up for people when they put down the whip. Like for example, if that whip represents your hope, like if you feel like you're a bit by abandoning the whip, you're abandoning hope that you will ever be the person the world has told you you're supposed to be, then you're going to experience grief, even despair in stopping beating yourself up because you're letting go of the person the world said you should be. You're letting go of the hope that you will ever be the person that you aren't. P.S you will never be the person that you aren't. Yeah, that's a TPS. You're not actually, there's nothing better about that person than who you are right now. Right. It's also an absolute impossibility. Like yeah. it's a mathematical, it's like you're, they're, they're antithetical. You can't simultaneously be the person you are and the person that you aren't at the same time. Right. Yeah. And the only way to be a person you aren't is to destroy yourself, which is why you have to beat the shit out of yourself. I get that. So putting down the whip is letting go of the hope that you could be the person that you aren't and uh, embracing the person that you are, letting that person heal and get stronger. And I think a second thing that happens is as people heal and get stronger, they become really afraid of how strong they are. 
Yes. They get scared of what they're able to do. They see their impact in the world. They're like a giant trotting through the ocean. They're like, oh, whoa, I'm going places I was never built to go as far as anybody told me. Um, It also sometimes happens that as people get stronger, uh, women in particular will get torn down by cultures uh, who are like, how dare you? You need to get back in line. How dare you stop whipping yourself? How dare you heal and get strong when I am required to keep whipping myself and stay broken and torn? How dare you? It feels like a judgment that if you can stop beating yourself up, then you're saying that all the decades I spent beating the shit out of myself were a waste, that I have suffered all this time, that I have hated these parts of myself all this time for nothing. And how dare you? I simply cannot tolerate you having those feelings. Um, so there's a lot of barriers to yes. letting go of self-criticism and welcoming who you are as a person. Like I don't, often when people talk about things like self-compassion and reducing self-criticism and allowing yourself to be the person you are, they put it in these very like warm, fuzzy, glowing, light, lavender, chiffon, beauty, rooty tooty, fresh and fruity kind of language. Um, mm-hmm. And in my experience, it is ugly and scary and uh, uncomfortable and even painful because when you stop beating yourself up and you start to heal, well, if you break a finger, as it heals, does, does your finger feel really good while no. it's healing? No, healing hurts hard. So when you stop beating yourself up and you start to heal, you experience the discomfort of healing. And for a lot of people, they either interpret that as a sign that they did the wrong thing because now look how much pain they're in. Well, you were always in that pain, but you were like reinforcing it so you didn't have to be aware of it. And also it's a new and different kind of pain from the pain you've been inflicting on yourself. And so you need new and different ways of tolerating the pain. And so you end up turning toward maybe some maladaptive coping strategies Uh to uh, deal with the discomfort that comes with healing and growing stronger and the fear you have of the growing stronger and the fear you have of the person that you are deep down and the fear that other people are not going to welcome the person that you are. Yeah. That is absolutely one of those, I'm afraid I was rambling moments. (laughs) No, it's amazing. I think... I think the thing that's for people who want to read it. Yeah, exactly. I think that the important thing about this is to know that if you don't instantly feel good about something, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You've been taught all your life that some of these skills are um, dangerous. Yeah. Accepting yourself as you are. How dare you get back in line? Yeah, there's a whole, this whole thing, the one I'm really railing against lately is this incessant optimizing and sort of tweaking and tinkering and can we just be just a little bit more like a robot? And it just, it just doesn't work. I mean, how was it for you writing this book? Because I know there's a meta layer we could get into here. And I I gotta hear the meta because (laughs) I'm... If you're writing a book about burnout and writing a book is stressful, what Mm. was your experience like inside of writing a book about burnout? Yeah, I do find uh, writing nonfiction in particular to be 
really exhausting and overwhelming and stressful. And then in January of 2018, uh, I was both writing the book and working on my TED talk. Oh which, yeah. I don't know if you've written a TED talk, but it's, uh, it's, it's hard. Intense. It's a lot. Um, and my TED talk is about sexual violence. Oh yeah. A so talk topic. about dwelling in the dark. Oh, you, oh, oh, so my editor's like, we need a, a more concrete example of the ways that sexual arousal gets used as a weapon against survivors of sexual violence. Great. Let me go do that research. Awesome. Yeah, that um, sounds really warm and fuzzy. It was, it was a lot. So, uh, yes, but, I, you know, I'm professional. I'm doing both things at once. Um, and Amelia was going to go with me to TED to be my uh, emotional support peacock, as we called her. <laughs> and, uh, but she was having difficulty with her travel plans and scheduling it around the semester. And she was telling me about her travel plans. And I was like up to my, even though I do this for a living, I was up to my eyebrows and stress. I was just past my capacity to cope. And when that happens, I turn into uh, Taka from Moana, the lava monster. <laughs> so Amelia's talking just about her like difficulties in organizing her travel. And I go, well, fine. Maybe you just don't need to go to Ted. I'll just go by myself. <laughs> And she, because we had been like working on this book about stress and burnout, overwhelm and exhaustion, she recognized what was going on. Um, Good. And she did not say, you know, Emily, it feels like you might be overwhelmed <laughs> a little and like need to take a break. That is not what you did. She said, okay, so what's going to happen now is that I'm going to take your dogs in my car to my house and you are going to make a reservation and go to the beach and get a massage today because you were over your capacity to cope and you're being a bitch. Nice. Like, that is, that's what community care looks like. Yeah. Or what, like it doesn't have to be like, I just want to make sure you know that there's a gap between your intention and your impact, Emily. Right. No, it, it was, uh, you got to go. Because I know that when your chemistry changes, you're going to feel really bad for how you're behaving right now. Mm, uh, and so, I, so she, she took my out of there. And I, and I, I was like, I got in my car. Fine, I'll go to the beach. You'll see. I don't have to take a break. And as soon as I got there and I saw the waves rolling over the sand, like I just felt the shift in my chemistry. And I immediately started texting apologies to Amelia. They're like, you're right. I needed to take a break. I was over my threshold and I was so far over it. I didn't even know that I was so far deep in the tunnel that I didn't even know I was in the tunnel. And she was, you know how feelings are tunnels? You have to get all the way through the darkness to get to the light. I was so far, I didn't even realize I was there. And she called from the end to be like, you're being so mean to people right now. And I know that you're doing that because of your feelings and not because of how you feel about the people. Right. So I'm going to help you out by requiring you to stop being mean to people. So that was our, that was our burnout story. <laughs> And that's the thing is like burnout isn't self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. Yeah, because you can't see it from the inside a lot of times. A lot of times, especially if you get raised as a girl, you get taught not to believe your own body. You get taught that if you do not have the energy to do all the things, there's a problem with you. 
not a problem with your to-do list. Yeah. And that is never true. No, it's not. Especially... Amelia has uh, COVID now. Oh, she, um, oh no. And she's, she's one of the long haulers. The reason I'm doing all this stuff right now is because she's working her actual job while living with uh, basically chronic fatigue syndrome induced by COVID. Oh no. So like two months. Um, and so remember, she's a person who was hospitalized twice over the course of her graduate. She's not awesome at listening to her body. Right. And uh, this is like, what, what a wonderful learning opportunity. What a mm. moment of growth this can be for Amelia because she's just forced to recognize what the limits of her energy are. And when it comes to like, here's everything on her to-do list, here's the energy she's got for the day. It has taken her a while to be like, just some things on my to-do list. I don't work according to the to-do list. I work according to my energy. And then I stop because I know the cost the next day is too high. But that is, it is, we are so used to measuring ourselves by external standards, the to-do list being the most benign of those standards. Yeah, but it can be used like a weapon, practically, these oh, yeah. to-do lists. Yeah, because you, you're blamed and judged if you can't do all the things. Like, there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. I'm sure there are researchers that work on expanding time seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day. And the thing is, you're really supposed to be sleeping for seven to nine of those day hours. You really, yep, and if you and steal from sleep, you're going to pay for it. You don't, the sleep is a biological drive. You literally die yep. without sleep. It will very slowly kill you if it doesn't quickly kill you in a car accident because you're driving as impaired as if you've uh, had four hours of sleep one night, you're as impaired as a person who's legally intoxicated, a 0.1 blood alcohol level. Um, if you've had six or fewer hours of sleep every night for the last two weeks, as impaired as a person who's drunk, would you drive drunk? Would you go to your kid's play drunk? Would you go to work write a paper, drunk. If you wouldn't do those things drunk, then consider whether you should do them when you're deeply sleep deprived. Yeah. And I know that there are times in our lives when it's like, if you have a newborn infant in your household, no sleep for you, you're done. Like, and you just tolerate that for the transitional period of a couple of years, maybe when you're going to be underslept. That is a price we pay to raise babies. Um, and recognize that it is a price you are paying. It is taking a toll on your body and your mental health and your physical health. It's, yeah. And I think that we accept all of these things as just, you know, the way it is now. Or we think, oh, these days nobody gets X amount of sleep. But to me, it's like I am useless to myself and everybody else if I cut There's from sleep. I love that. There's always someone in any audience um, who is like, nope, I protect my sleep. I defend my sleep. I know that it is necessary for me to be the human being that I want to be in the world. There's always somebody, I'm one of those people too, where like sleep is priority number one. If you have to choose between a workout and sleep, sleep every time. Because yep. if you try to work out when you're underslept, you're setting yourself up for injury and permanent muscle damage. So sleep. Sleep is the more important one. That's not if I don't I don't give much direct advice. Um, but I anybody who's listening, if you follow the Nap Ministry on Instagram mm, or Twitter, oh yes, 
the nap bishop will change your life. She frames napping, rest, daydreaming, saying no to stuff, treating your calendar as a sacred text. Mm. It all as action against and commentary on the theft of labor from the bodies of Black people in America, that for Black people and Black women in particular, rest is a revolution. It's part of reparations. It's not all of reparations, but it is part of reparations to honor and celebrate rest and joy. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, there's so much that's been taken. And I think that we need to, yeah, we need to contribute to that. And I think the other thing that's tricky is that for so many people, writing is not valued as a full-time career. So you're always having that labor of writing. Mm -hmm. We expect to read things for free. We expect to read things for free online. We expect to download documents. We don't expect to have to pay for writing. And that's another piece of of labor that's taken. And so people are having to cut their sleep. They're having to cut exercise. They're having to cut any kind of care that they do for themselves. And women, it's particularly hard because of this third shift. And, you know, if you've got intersectional things on top of that, it's even harder. And those are the voices that we want to hear because those are the ones that can change the system that's causing the problem in the first place. Exactly. So the code of human giver syndrome is if you're a giver, you have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, yet calm, generous, and above all, attentive to the needs of others. And for a writer to go sit alone in a quiet place and just transition their mind onto a screen or a piece of paper is the ultimate neglect of other people's needs and how dare you. And human giver syndrome yes, applies more to women than to men, but applies more to women of color than to white women. White women often find themselves in a position of feeling like they can treat women of color with the same uh, entitlement that men treat women. Definitely. Not to get all like super heavy and dark. No, but it's not okay. Demand to to perform and like, like make, like I'm going to create a soft place for your feelings because you need, I need you need me to hold that space for you. And I can do that. And I'm never just going to turn my back on you and write down my rage about how I feel about this right now. (laughs) Yeah. Like we can all relate to that. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we have to hold the fact that it's okay and it's, an, it's a revolutionary act that needs to happen to let some human giver things on the to-do list slide so that you can write if you feel like you need to write. Which will, like some of that stuff just doesn't need to get done. Right. Some of that stuff you can trade money for. Correct. Under the right circumstances, if you have it. Um, for a long time, I did not have that money and I'd be really pissed at somebody who said that to me. But- Like when you think the way Amelia does it is, okay, so here's the pile of money of how much it costs to have your house cleaned, 40 bucks, 70 bucks. And then here's the amount of time and emotional wherewithal that you would have to take on and the physical labor. Like on the one hand, literally in one hand, you hold the money. On the other hand, you hold the work, every kind of work, which... Which would you rather have? 
Yep. And uh, when I finally had like a full-time job, like I was in school until I was 29. I didn't have a job job until I was 31. And by the time that happened, uh, I was so used to thinking in terms of like, I just have to do everything because I have no money. Um, it was really difficult for me to be like, wait a minute, how much is that really in the scheme of things? Like, what would I have to trade in order to create that budget in order not to have to do that? It took 10 more years beyond having a job job before I was able to even consider it. Um, so like, if people are like, well, that must be fucking nice for you, Emily. <laughs> it is. It, yeah. it took a lot for me to get to a place where I could both financially and emotionally. And oh my God, I'm so glad that I did. Yeah. It, through COVID, actually, people obviously are not coming and we still pay our house cleaner, but like, so the house is, a, is the way it was before. And now you know how valuable it is. And I'm like, is. oh, this is how much of a difference it makes to have somebody who will just like mop once a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. The difference and the things that we don't let ourselves have and the things that we think are necessary, like the things that we say yes to. I think the other thing is, Oh my God. Yeah. Is we say yes to stuff because we feel obligated to do it because we feel like, Oh, it wouldn't be nice in quotes to say no to that. Yeah. And you can have, okay, I'm nice and doing something that I now resent mm -hmm. or I can be doing the writing that I want to do. And yeah. That's and, a hard uh, so one, but I feel like I'm there at this point. My, uh, my editor for my first book, Come As You Are, her name is Sarah Knight. Uh, shortly after my book came out, she quit her job uh, and wrote a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh yeah, I know that book. Yeah, and she wrote, she's written a whole series of no fucks given guides, uh, one of which is Calm the Fuck Down. Yep. Uh, one of which is, uh, so. but she talks about fuck bucks. Like how many yes. fuck bucks do you have? Can you afford to give a fuck about this? And if you can't, be polite and say no. Um, and that, that goes along with the human giver syndrome. Like, so suppose we have two givers in a shared workplace and giver A says to giver B, hey, can you help me with this project? And giver B says, no, actually, I don't have time for that. I'm really sorry. Does giver A respond with, I see you protecting your boundaries. I support that and I love it. High five for you. Or no. does that person go, you know, it's not going to take that much, but I just really need your help on this one. Or let's have a meeting about it. <laughs> and discuss whether we need to do it. Oh God. Yeah. The yeah. meetings. So uh, one of the ways that we can cope with burnout is by recognizing when other givers are protecting their boundaries and not m letting there be a consequence for them for saying no. Cause we all know those times when you, like you try to protect your boundary. You say, mm, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do that. And the person pushes and you're like, you know what? I just like, I can't. And you'd like, they push again and again. And eventually it becomes less work to just say yes than it is to defend your no. Yep. So that's self-care. It's not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. Don't make a fellow giver pay a price for protecting their energy and their boundaries. Yes. And no, if somebody does that to you, one of the most revelatory things for me personally 
in writing the book was recognizing what it feels like to be in a connection with a person who feels entitled to take everything I have. Oh, and the yeah. more I give them, the more entitled they feel versus what it feels like to be in connection with a fellow giver who feels obligated to share with me, which activates my feeling of obligation to share with them. It's a totally different experience. So if you notice yourself having to fight to protect a no, a boundary that you've set, it's not always possible, but where you can divest from that relationship and put that energy into a connection with a fellow giver who's not going to cost you time and energy in order to be the person you are. Yes. I I couldn't agree more. Having been it's in, easier said than done, I know. Yep. Yep. But as much as you can, it will change everything. Yes. Oh my goodness. I could go on all day talking about this, but it's my favorite thing to talk about it's now. It's the best. And I'm so grateful that we got to talk about it. And I know that if you haven't heard me yelling about this book yet, then I hope you will read it now because now you see how important it is that you understand these concepts so that you can take care of yourself, set your limits and know that it's not just you. Yes. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.